My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We have recently completed a whole string of episodes that dealt with some of the more minor titles in King's work. But today we are we are tackling one of the big boys. And to do that, we have... We brought in a guest who uh, Eric and I are extremely excited to talk to. This is a guy that we're big fans of. He is the former co-host of the Gilmore Guys and Punch Up the Jam podcasts, and an exceptionally talented comedian and writer whose work you've seen on The Good Place, The Late Late Show with James Corden, and the Between Two Ferns movie. He's also the mastermind behind a series of increasingly elaborate viral videos set to Earth, Wind, and Fire's September the most recent of which helped to raise over $300,000 for charity. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Demi Bay. Hello. How are you doing today? I feel great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, we're, we're super excited to talk to you. Before we go on, I, I want to know, like, after you released the latest September video, is there just a sense of like calm after that, like after the buildup to it. And then once it's no. out there, do you just crash for a while or like, where are you at? No, it's just a, a snowball of anxiety. It's like a snowball of anxiety making it. And then like a, a bit of calm between me shooting it and going, all right, well, I got to edit some stuff Then a snowball of anxiety in that period. And then it's like, all right, I got to set up this charity thing. And then it's snowball and anxiety for that. And then, <laughs> all right, I have to release it. And then just snowball of anxiety of like, okay, I need, it's going to be like three days before I can just, not think about this uh anymore but yeah you For must anybody be that that, that doesn't really know what this is uh it it's essentially like a oneer that is the most elaborate thing <laughs> that you could possibly do that incorporates the date of september 21st right <laughs> in a way it's kind of hard <laughs> to explain like um i i announced to my to my wife that we had demi coming on the show i was very excited about it and she was unfamiliar with the September videos. And so I had the pleasure of sitting down and showing her like each one, <laughs> like like all five of them back to back. And she enjoyed them, but didn't understand. Like she didn't, she's not good with like uh, surrealist or absurdist or, you know, funny for the sake of funny, you know? Sure. But watching her react to them was, fuck, it was so, it was so goddamn funny. When you when you start plotting them out, like how far in advance do you land on an idea to actually, you know what I'm it's saying? It's different every year. Yeah. Uh, this year was the first year that it was even like a month out. I was like, all right, let's start thinking. But every year before that, it's been like two weeks, which is a problem. Holy and, shit. Yeah. I've been pretty quick about them in previous that years. That seems like a year, very brief amount of time to execute. Yeah, it, it that's I mean, I think it all comes from this place of me being like, well, I don't want to do it again and I'm not going to do it again. And then I come up with an idea. I'm like, OK, I'll do it one more time. And then this year was the first year that uh, I had like an explicit like thing that was like, OK, I guess I will have to do it again this year. So like around August, I think 14th, my uh, co-producer and I were just like, all right, let's start thinking of concrete ideas. You you set a a goal at the end of the latest video to raise fifty thousand dollars for charity, 
and then blew straight past that. Were you shocked by the amount of money that you've raised so far? I absolutely was. Um, so my co-producer and I uh, had sort of argued about what that goal should be. And she was saying, I think we could do 100000 And I was like, no, people will be like, that's ludicrous. And we won't get there. And it'll be embarrassing. And so we settled on 50000 And like three hours after I uh, had posted the video, she texted me, just being like, you owe me a cake. We absolutely <laughs> could have gotten 100000 And my roommate was saying the same thing. Just like, we have no idea. Uh, we have no like semblance of what people will donate because i also did a thing earlier uh, in the year like when uh, COVID first hit saying that i would do uh, a charity thing where i would compose songs for every thousand dollars that we could raise and mm-hmm. then it was like i raised twenty four thousand dollars and i was like okay i, I should have made that number higher and then for this <laughs> i was like okay well i think this is a high enough number and then it was like no that wasn't high enough so it's just i have no earthly idea what the internet is like like, I don't know what a good number for charity things is. <laughs> Those kind of things are hard, like setting a goal for a Patreon or a GoFundMe or anything like that. Anytime I've been involved with one of those things, there's so much like overthinking that goes into yeah. the into the numbers of it. And especially a charity thing is you just never know. And money's tight with people. So it's uh, I don't know. It's really admirable what you pulled off. So, you know, my hat's off to you. That's really awesome. Now, you have brought us one of the the bigger titles in the Stephen King canon, which is the Shawshank Redemption. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your relationship with the Shawshank Redemption? Like, Totally. Yeah. I'm shocked that uh, this had not been taken before. Because I'm like, <laughs> Me well, too. When I think of Stephen King, I'm like, well, there is the big one that is like the number one on IMDb's top 250 or whatever, which is always how I'd kind of known it is like this behemoth of a movie that was like known to be one of the greatest. And so I think in college sometime I was like, all right, well, I guess I should watch it. And I watched it and I was like, yeah, that was very good. Wow. And that's like <laughs> really my entire relation to it outside of like its cultural significance of being like, even just like what it did for Morgan Freeman's career and what mm-hmm. it did uh, just like quote wise and like reference wise, just as this like sort of mainstay of pop culture I don't have like a connection to Stephen King or to uh, Frank Darabont or anything, but I watched this movie and I was like, wow, yeah, that is a, it's a fantastic movie. It's a good question of why it hasn't been picked at this point. I think it intimidates some people. Like, I think it's much easier for somebody to pick the dark half, for instance, you know, something that, that feels like more of an underdog title where they can champion it. Now, we've had the same problem with The Shining you'd think that would be the first movie up for, for people, but I think people are intimidated by it. They, so much has been said about it and they don't want to repeat stuff. So kudos to you for not being intimidated. I guess I should have known that after watching all your September videos. It's half not intimidated half. I don't, it's like, I've seen so few of them and I don't want to talk about a scary one. Cause I'm just like, what am I going to say? Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> are you a horror movie fan in general then? I am. I, w- I wasn't for the longest time. It wasn't until, funny enough, I saw It Follows uh, because mm. my friends had kept... I, I also... It's crazy to say this, but I didn't really get into movies until like 2010 because I had not... Like, I didn't grow up watching movies. I didn't grow up like with any sort of like my parents showing me this and showing me this. So there was like big giant blank spots in my film watching history. And it wasn't until like I was about to go to college and I was like, oh, these are all that I want to care about. And then, like, in I, I was always like, well, I probably can't h- handle horror movies because I, I think those will be too scary for me, and I'm a wimp. And then I saw, <laughs> uh, I remember 
I I worked up the courage to go see Red Eye in theaters whenever it was coming out. And I was like, all right, I can handle that. Maybe I'm having a nice thing. And then I did not see another horror movie until like It Follows was coming out. And uh, my friends were all talking about it and how like insane it was. And I was just like, I need to see it. I really think I need to see it. And then I went and saw it and I was like, oh, wait, no, I can. Yeah, this is fine. I can handle this. And then I just like went on it. I was like, horror movie, horror movie, horror movie. And I was like, oh, no, I love these. I'm not. This isn't like bad for me. It's great. So, yeah. And you went to school here and Eric and I are both in Austin and you went to school here, which I, I didn't realize. And there's a huge, you know, film presence in this city and and especially like a horror film presence, you know, with the draft house and Austin Film Society. I think I think horror probably gets more attention than just about anything else. So I'm I'm kind of surprised to hear that. Did you find it follows frightening? Like, did it fuck you up? No, but I did. I loved the tension of it, but I didn't. I don't know. I think when I watch when I watch a really good horror movie, I'm rarely like scared by it as much as I am. Just sort of like I find myself like amazed. Like I, I have this feeling of like a mad scientist watching his creation come to life. I'm just like, wow, yes, you did it. <laughs> and that's that's what I got with it. Follows, which I think is a fantastic movie. A good friend of mine, she cannot handle. It's not so much the the horror element as the intensity. She has a problem dealing with that and. When Uncut Gems, right before Uncut Gems came out, I hosted a screening of that with the 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 boys at uh, uh, Alamo. The Safties, Dra- yeah, the Safties at a uh, at Alamo Draft House, and and she came out to it, and I had already seen it at that point, and I knew like how intense and just like nerve shredding that movie is, yeah. and I was like, man, I don't know, dude, like I don't know if you're gonna be able to handle this, and and she really wanted to see it, and. It was one of the the great pleasures of my movie going experiences last year was to sit next to her in a theater and watch her literally squirm around in her chair for like two hours. That movie did a number on her. Oh, God, uh, I can only imagine. Yeah. So, yeah, Shawshank Redemption, not very scary at all. Depends what your definition of scary is. Yeah, in a thematic sense, maybe. Not supernaturally <laughs> scary. But er- Eric, what are, do you want to talk about the, uh, the novella a bit? Yeah, sure. I think that... Um that mostly we'll be focusing on the movie, but like, luckily for us, the movie and the novella are very similar. Yeah. Um, so this is a different season story, you know, at pupil and the body, which became stand by me was also in there. And so was breathing method. And of those, you know, there, there's little horror elements in almost all of them. Uh, but breathing method is really the only one that's like supernatural. Mm-hmm. If my memory's correct. That's the one where, where the pregnant mother gets her head cut off and uh, the body still delivers the baby. Yeah. A, cl- a classic story. You know, I haven't adapted that one for film, huh? <laughs> it's weird. You know, someone can make that work. Uh, I, I know that that's been a dollar baby. I, I, I seem to remember sometime <laughs> in the odd, somebody sent, uh, sent me an animated version of, of that. Oh, wow. uh, Jesus. What was the, well, hold on. What did it look like? Like, what was it? Was it like cartoons? It was, it was, was in it that like era anime? of like South, South Park, uh, like do-it-yourself computer animation. Oh, God. Stuff. So it was kind of in that like paper, CGI paper animation looking stuff. If uh, my memory was, was right. People have asked us to do Dollar Baby episodes and like just the idea of let alone watching it, but just compiling all these things. Uh, Demi, if you're not familiar, Stephen King has a uh, uh, a system in place where he will option his short stories and novellas that aren't already optioned to be made right. in other features to students, film right? students. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and want to be directors and he'll option them for for a dollar but you know he retains all rights to the material and they can't make any money on the the short or whatever but it gives them you know material for them to you know hone their talents yeah. so build out a resume so, right funnily enough frank darabont was one of the early recipients of of mm-hmm. that he did a woman uh, in the room adaptation yeah and but that one was actually something that went out there right that i seem to remember that they put that out on like vhs yeah, I feel like I felt. I feel like I saw that one at some point. I don't know. I don't know when or where. I the memory of it that I have is like I saw it on VHS. So it was a long fucking time ago. Whenever I saw that thing, but I don't. Yeah, and it was a long that. time since he made it that he actually worked up the the courage to ask King for the rights to Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. which he did many many years before he actually made it. But. Uh, my understanding is that he finally got his first screen credit on Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, mm-hmm. and took some of that money, his payday, from writing a, a franchise horror movie and went to Stephen King and said, here's $5,000, give me the rights to Shawshank Redemption. And King was like, I don't know how the hell you'd make this into a movie. It's just one, it's just a, a dude talking about another inmate for the entire <laughs> length of the story. So, you know, here you go, have fun. I think it's become a little bit of King lore at this point, but uh, he never cashed Darabont's check and ended up regifting that five thousand dollar check that Frank wrote him to Frank after he made the movie. Yeah, he uh, framed it. Like he, yeah, he did. He framed it and signed it or something, right? Yeah, yeah. It said, um, "Keep this in case you ever need bail money." Love, Steve. <laughs> right. What a baller like move. There's so many like stories about Stephen King and his like history of like feeling certain ways about adaptations of his work and then feeling mm. other ways. And like, it, it's very funny to me that he's the one who always seems to not even get it wrong necessarily, but just be like, mm, I don't know if that's going to work or like, mm, I don't <laughs> think that is a good one. And the world's like, no, it, it's great. <laughs> yeah, he has odd tastes. There was a period of time in like the nineties and, and early aughts where he wrote routinely for EW for entertainment weekly. Yeah. And he would just like write random, like these are my 10 favorite movies of the year every year. And they were all the most like bananas titles. Like, you know, sometimes where you like Tarantino does this, where he, he'll be like, and then my favorite movie was step up three or something. You're like, what the fuck? You know, that's not supposed to be right. I love when Tarantino does it. Cause there's always one where I'm like, okay, I agree with you there and no (laughs) one else does, but why am I, I don't, I don't want to, like go for the rest of this like when he was like the lone ranger was great i was like i agree the rest of this is mm-hmm. weird though <laughs> yep man yeah, I, tried to re- I tried to rewatch lone ranger like not long ago because i i love gore verbinski's stuff like i'm a big fan of that guy mm-hmm. and uh the the last you know 20 minutes of that movie with is untouchable it's like bullet oh, train sequence right yeah, with the yeah, great. I mean, like to orchestrate something like that and make it look as good as it does. My hat is off to Verbinski, but it, it always is. You know, I love Mouse Hunt. Like, I'm the only person I know that'll go to bat for fucking Mouse Hunt. I liked, uh, well, I like the first one and a half of the the Pirates movies, but we're I, I don't want to go down a, a Verbinski hallway here. We'll, we'll <laughs> never get, we'll never get out of it. But lots and lots of the Lone Ranger didn't work for me and. That that's also the example I think of, like whenever people talk about Tarantino's best of lists, it's yeah, it's just you know, there's no telling what's going on in the mind of of Quentin Tarantino. 
I feel like every sort of like famous auteur genius filmmaker always has like weird idiosyncratic tastes in film. And then we're always like shocked when it's like, Paul Thomas Anderson loves uh, Adam Sandler. It's like, yeah, of course he does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He made that one work for him with Punch Drunk Love, too. Oh, yeah. But I I do think that Anderson recognized Sandler's, you know, ability to do drama and to, you know, carry a movie without like being a goofy. Well, I guess he is kind of a goofy man child in in Punch Drunk Love. But to sort of turn that whole persona on its ear and make it dark, that was that was something that I don't think anyone else, you know, recognized as a possibility until PTA came along. So. These guys are way smarter than I am, so I should just trust whatever their fucking, you know, whatever their takes are. Lone Ranger's good. Fine. I'll accept. So I think we, we've we already covered the novella end of this, right? We don't have anything to add there, Eric? I think that it's important to note that King is right in that the story is told fully from Red's perspective, which Darabont does mostly in the movie. Uh, but re- on this last rewatch, after because I, I reread the the novella before jumping into this latest rewatch, and so watching it so quickly after looking at the original text, it really jumped out to me how the movie opens outside of Red's point of view. The whole opening credit mm-hmm. sequence follows Andy and his. It cuts between his trial and like his memory of of the night where he's sitting out front of his wife and lover's cabin with a gun. And is he going to do it and get drunk and, and, and all this stuff. And it's so interesting to me how different that that feels from the rest of the movie. Cause that's more like movie movie and the rest of the movie is its own special thing. And it's all a hundred percent focused on, on red's perspective, everything. What is it? Uh, Morgan Freeman's narration. Mm hmm. Oh, sorry. Do you hear that wolf howl? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, that that's my. Uh, I don't know the if you guys have Ring doorbell devices, but that's uh, they have Halloween one. So somebody or some cat or some shadow just walked past my door. So there you go. It's a ghoul. But yeah, and what, what's interesting is that when Morgan Freeman's narration starts, it doesn't start till about ten minutes into the movie, and that's when the movie is the movie everybody remembers. I, I maybe it's just me, but like so much of of that opening, I'd forgotten. Yeah, I'd even forgotten why he goes to jail, honestly. That opening, like, I just rewatched it, you know, like, literally just before we recorded this. And I hadn't seen it in 10 or 15 years. And I had sort of forgotten that opening as well. And where it's like cutting between the courtroom and Tim Robbins in the car. I guess I guess with a gun to my head, I would have been able to conjure that out of my memory. But I had, I had forgotten about that it leads off that way and that the the credits play over it, which I think is a really clever choice. And he also shoots it ambiguously, right? Because the whole point is that you don't really know for sure if Andy did it or not. And if he was lying in that courtroom and right. they make such a big deal at the beginning of like, nope, there's no such thing as a guilty man in Shawshank. You know, everybody here is innocent, right? Right. And, uh, and Morgan Freeman, even later in the, the movie, ha- says that he's the only guilty man in Shawshank. He's the only one who will admit why he's in there. I um, guess that's true. Demi, did you have any doubt the first time you saw this that Andy might be guilty? No, but I I sort of just had this presumed innocence of any protagonist in a film where it's like, uh, no, they want us to be sympathetic for him, so they're not going to be like, yeah, he did it. But even watching this again, I was just sort of like waiting for the thing where it's like, well, we, they need to confirm that he didn't do it beyond a shadow of a doubt for us. So I was just sort of like, it was weird to watch this again and just go like, 
I, I remember specific beats and specific things, but I don't remember the pieces in between. So mm-hmm. when Tommy was introduced and they had that thing about uh, finding out about that guy at the country club, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this seems like a crucial element that I had totally forgotten about. I love that guy, the fucking weirdo that they bring in the with the big teeth. Oh, um, yeah. Dude, he's oh, so dude. unsettling to just look at. His name is Elmo, I think? Yeah, yeah. His character, well, his character name, you know, right. probably, probably <laughs> not in, in real life. But. Not not played by the Muppet, strangely <laughs> enough. Couldn't get him. Well, it was only a $25 million budget. They didn't have a lot of money to throw around. When I think of Shawshank Redemption, I think of Morgan Freeman's narration, which is something I feel like you were kind of totally. hitting on a, a minute ago. Right. And that's what, when the movie becomes the movie. Right. Like it, it's the combination of his narration and just the the bonding between those two guys in prison. You know, it's the best friends turning into best friends. Right. So the movie is not the movie without Morgan Freeman's narration. You know, like we're all on that page. And so it blew my fucking mind to to be watching this again uh, this morning. And I was like reading through the Wikipedia page. And I guess when Darabont brought this to Castle Rock, which is Rob Reiner's production company, and he brought it over there after Reiner had already done Misery and Stand By Me. So they had a proven track record with this sort of thing. They're like, yes, we want to make this movie. But Rob Reiner was like, we'll give you two and a half million dollars if you'll let me direct this myself. And Darabont stood his ground and was like, no, you know, this is he talked about, you know, growing up poor and and what that money might mean to him. But also this was like his passion project. And he sort of dug in his heels and was like, no, I want to do it. And what I found out was that Rob Reiner wanted to cast um, Tom Cruise in the Tim Robbins role and Harrison Ford in the Morgan Freeman role. And just reading this like short circuited my brain. Like, can you imagine a version of this where Harrison Ford is is red? Like, I literally can't wrap my head around that idea. And and this would have been like what fugitive era Harrison Ford? Yeah, I Are suppose. They, I mean, I guess they're different enough in age that it would have worked. But in my head, I'm like, I feel like I would have just been like, okay, it's two guys who are like 20 years apart doing this versus I don't know. I feel like I, I see Tim Robbins in this in the beginning, and I do feel like he's a bit younger than you'd expect that character to be. And you do sort of watch him become a little older, which is mostly just because of a haircut and glasses change. But I'm like, no, there's a definite like age gap between these two and the wisdom that Morgan Freeman brings, even in his youngest part of this movie. I'm like, no, this guy has lived. So it'd be weird to see Harrison Ford. There's something elemental about Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Like, like at any age, he seems like a dude that has been around for decades, if not millennia. Like, this man has seen some things. There's some wisdom there. Harrison Ford, I don't think, really communicates that. And also, if they had gone down the Harrison Ford route, that would have been sort of like, I don't think, I don't think uh, Red is black in the book. He's he's just no, a, no. He's a, he's a redheaded Irishman. Yeah, name, and, that's why his name is Red. Yeah. yeah so, which opens the door to. Harrison Ford doing an unfortunate Irish accent. And, and so so now imagine Shawshank Redemption, but most of the voiceover is done by Harrison Ford doing like a really janky Irish accent. I do not I feel think... like he would have refused to just be like, no, I'm not doing that. Didn't he do an accent in The Devil's Own or was that was that Brad Pitt only? I think that was Brad Pitt. Yeah, and he was Irish, right? Brad Pitt loves an Irish accent. Weird, weird connection, though. Brad Pitt was going to pay Tommy in this movie. I, I remember reading that too, or my friend told me, and I was just like, hmm, I don't, it would have been distracting, first of all, but I, I wonder how it would have played. Would it just be like, yeah, that that's fine. They shot this in what, like 93? 
So that would have been Brad Pitt around the time True Romance came out. I can well, see that working because because the character they are trying to make him into like this fifties cool guy, you know, yeah. with the with the uh, the Elvis haircut and and chops and everything. He's yeah. kind of dumb, like, yeah. but Brad Pitt is good at playing like as as evidenced in True Romance, like kind of a just <laughs> or like burn a, after reading. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he excels in dumb guy. <laughs> it speaks to Darabont's smarts in not being so beholden to the source material that he was like, nope, got to cast a white guy in this role because mm-hmm. he's written as white. Can you imagine literally anybody else in that role besides Morgan Freeman now? Like you no. can't like that's such the perfect casting. His relationship with Tim Robbins works so well. Robbins plays it so well. I can't imagine Tom Cruise in that role. He's just too, too confident. Andy as a character has to be somebody who looks broken a, a little bit. He, he, he has to look a little bit out of place and he has to be quiet and unassuming. And that's just, Tom Cruise is a great actor. There's no question about it. You know, I, I think he's reached that point now where everybody acknowledges he rules despite, you know, his weird uh, Scientology shit. There was this a period of time where he was just the pretty boy actor. All these guys go through it. Leonardo DiCaprio went through it, mm-hmm. you know, but now we're in that, that zone where Tom Cruise is just acknowledged as being an awesome screen presence. But I don't, I don't think he, he would have had it in him to be as vulnerable yeah. as, uh, as Tim Robbins that yeah. plays in this movie. I think Tom Cruise always plays it too. Like, I think he plays it too strong and too sort of like, if I need to like step up and fight here, I will. Whereas Tim Robbins is like just on defense the entire time. And even in moments where it's like he is doing something where it's like, this is a very risky move. It doesn't feel like he's doing it thinking like I'm winning here as much as it is that like, he's just sort of like, I just need to do this thing. Like the, the scene of him locking the door and playing that music with Tom Cruise, it just plays way more. I think smarmy. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you a reason why Tim Robbins is perfect for this role. One very specific scene that plays two different ways, uh, depending on if you've seen the movie yet or not. It's the scene when they're turning down his room. The warden like grabs his Bible and they have the talk about the Bible and and he they're looking all over the room. They're tearing everything apart. There's a shot where Tim Robbins is facing away from from you know he's facing the wall and Clancy Brown is is like throwing all the the books off of his shelf right next to the uh, the poster and and everything. <laughs> if you've seen the end of the movie, you realize that they had right in front of them all the evidence that he was escaping. Right, and and the warden almost walks out of the cell with the Bible, and the Bible is concealing his uh, rock hammer. But we don't know that at the time. But you watch that scene now after having seen the movie, you rewatch it again. The subtlety in the way Tim Robbins plays that scene is so understated and right below the surface because the character can't look nervous. If the character looks nervous, you know, he's being scrutinized in that moment. It is such a brilliant piece of acting that it's not the kind of showy acting that gets awards, but it's the kind of acting that like that movie doesn't work. If that scene doesn't work in retrospect, right? Right. All the rewatchability almost hinges on that one scene working because if, you know, if you go in knowing what was happening and he just plays too cool for school, then the tension's gone, right? Or it, even too I don't nervous. Know. I, I love it. It becomes yeah. a thriller if you're just going like, oh no, there's something happening here. Right. I'm thinking about it, I think, from a different angle than you guys, because I'm thinking about like Tom Cruise playing this part, like in this moment. And in my mind's eye, he's like sort of giving the warden like, like a borderline Ben Stiller blue steel look, 
you know, like kind of staring him down while he's like tearing apart his, his cell and just not yeah. selling it as, you know, weak or, or frightened, right. you know, he's just like kind of staring him down. I think I, I think the problem is at this point, I've seen too many mission impossible movies. So I just <laughs> right. is like sort of an unstoppable badass. Yeah. I'm even just trying to think of like the youngest performances I've seen him in. I'm like, even those first like 10 days in jail or something, I just don't see him like, just sort of being a presence there who isn't reacting to anything. Yeah. And Cruz himself, have you ever been in a, in a room with Tom Cruise? Yeah. Like yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've met him before. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, I was at a, a dinner or something in Vegas uh, a few years ago where he was like the guest of honor. And before that he got up on stage and like gave a big presentation about it. This was at CinemaCon, and he gave a big presentation about the, the next mission impossible movie. And my hand to God, like when you are in a room with Tom Cruise, he like radiates some sort of weird aura where <laughs> you cannot take your fucking eyes off of him. It's it's hypnotic. Like this guy is just there's something I, I don't want to say inhuman because I'm not trying to dehumanize Tom Cruise, <laughs> but there's something like extra human about Tom Cruise, if that makes sense. And so I think that that would absolutely not work for this particular role. If that's that's just how he is in real life, it's what made him like a magnetic actor. But um, yeah, there's no have, fucking have, way. I can't. Imagine. Have you ever met him or seen him in person, Demi? No, he did a lot of stuff at the Late Late Show, but it was always like off campus, and I was never there. It's like I saw him. You know what? I saw him through a window once, and it was this thing where everyone was like, <laughs> "There he is!" But it, like that's the closest I got, and then seeing him like on the stage, and but everyone talks about his energy and how like intense he is. Wait, what was he doing through the window? Just, I just think like he was walking through our offices to get to oh, right the, the stage. I was, I was picturing you in an office looking outside, and he was like scrambling through a yeah, he's dumpster uh, or something. I don't know why that. Did. He was like, "I'll land on the helicopter pad at some time between zero and twenty oh hundred hours or whatever." Yeah. I'm going to tell you my Tom Cruise story, but I'm warning you in advance that it's like one of the most name droppy stories that I could possibly tell you. I'll just um, go, oh, here we go. Every time you say here. another name. Uh, so I was on the set of the war of the worlds and it was the final oh, brother. night of shooting. Here yeah. we fucking go. <laughs> and so I was told going in, I had my own exclusive day on set. It was, you know, uh, approved by the producers and it was this weird thing. And they don't usually allow press on Spielberg sets. And, but they knew I was a huge Spielberg fan and, and all this. Stuff. So they're like, cool. Well, I hope we can get you time with Steven. I hope, you know, don't, Tom isn't going to, is it didn't say he's not going to talk to you, but it he's was not like, going to acknowledge busy. your presence. <laughs> yeah. Tom's busy. It's like, you essentially just come to this, you know, set thinking you're going to just be watching from the sidelines, fly in the wall. And I'm like, that's all I need, you know, just to watch Spielberg work. He, you know, I saw him, it was one of the hillside night shoots. So it was the scene whenever the Humvee is on fire and rolls down the hill mm. and the, the army's like firing off at, at, in the distance. And, and so I was standing there watching just in hog heaven, watching Spielberg. He's like, Oh my God, he's 10 feet away. And you know, he's, he's manning the cameras in this like, the B camera and this one shot where he's lying on the ground and just rolling the camera himself, operating the camera. That's so crazy. Oh my God, this is everything I'd, I'd want it. And then the publicist comes up and says, Steven uh, wants to talk to you. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is, this is it. This is crazy. And, and uh, I, she walks me up to him and 
there's a whole like whole series of stories I can tell here, which I'll skip over. But he walks me up to him and he's like a general overlooking the battlefield. He had like hundreds of extras and and refugee clothing like in the valley below him. And it's the the air was thick was with the fog of the cannons firing and everything. And he's standing there smoking a stogie. And like talking to all of his heads of department. And as I'm being brought up to him, they all like disperse, just leaving him there. And it was like the most bizarre, like if this was like an almost famous style movie or whatever, that's how you would stage that scene. And uh, so I I walked up to him and we like hit it off. We talked about Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien stop motion stuff. And he like would randomly drop in like Jurassic Park anecdotes and this. And, and you know, after about 10 minutes of talking with him, he said, here, you know, I want you to here come into the tent and we'll I'll show you some stuff. And like he walks me to the director's tent, and, like the publicists are off on the side, like looking like some of them were looking nervous, like, oh, my God, is he walking into the tent? And the other ones are like, oh, my God, Spielberg's walking him into the tent. Go you kind of thing publicist at one point tried to come up and pulled me away and was like all right steve we'll let steven you know do your thing you know you go finish your movie and he goes no 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 wait i want i want eric to meet tom and they're like uh okay and so tom cruise walks up and spielberg introduces me go ahead oh brother there we go uh, there we are and uh and and he was like and i'll i'll, I'll second what scott said i i said all of like two sentences to the man. He sent all the two sentences to me, but it is the most uncanny thing I've ever experienced where when I was shaking his hand, there was like this tunnel vision where nothing else existed in the world in my, what I picked up, not, not from my end, from his end, there's an intensity to where I could totally sense that at that moment, the only thing that existed around Tom Cruise was me. Like he wasn't focused on anything. He wasn't distracted. He wasn't looking away. He was totally engaged with me and focused and, you know, said his pleasantries. But then the converse happened where then he started speaking with Steven and I didn't exist like to him at all. Like it was like this hot and cold tap almost. There are, there's this thing with stars that I hear about all the time where that's how they interact with people where it's just like a very direct focus on this one person. I feel like that's one of the things that makes them a star somehow. It's just like anyone they talk to is just like, I, I need this person to like me. I need this person to succeed. I need this. This is a, this is a person that matters. And I'm like, how, how does anyone else tap into that? (laughs) Demi, do you get starstruck at all? I have been starstruck like once in my life by uh john mulaney yeah i think you know tom cruise and like john mulaney that makes sense right the two uh (laughs) it was just like i i was uh working i was like shooting uh b-roll for this one thing that involved a bunch of comedians and like i was literally in a room with like 10 different comedians that i loved and i was just like wow every comedian i love in this room the only thing that could make it crazier is if john mulaney walked in and then five minutes later (laughs) mulaney walks in and i just had this moment like but like i've seen him around many times since then i always had this feeling like oh god there he is again and like he knows me now and i'll be like hey demi i still i'm like ah uh, ah." and it's like nerve-wracking every time you still haven't gotten past it no i don't know what it is i i think it's i think it's because he's my well he's my favorite comedian but it's also just this thing of like i keep being like well why does he know my name now what what did i do that makes him remember me and i just like it's another thing that inside me is like oh just a ball of anxiety i'm like no i did something that john mulaney hates and he remembers me for it And it's like (laughs) or it's because you work in the same industry i'm like no that's not it (laughs) he's super tall in real life too right Mm -hmm. yeah so i would imagine that like 
anyone of that height, like I'm a shorter dude. I think that would add to the the unreality of the moment or also like, you know, the just being sort of intimidated by his presence. Yeah. I also think that part of it is just it's never like I know I'm about to see John Mulaney. It's like a surprise every time I've seen him. So I'm just like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> does he say that whenever whenever surprise, you see him? I got you. Yeah. Pops out of a bush or something. So we've gotten pretty far away from Shawshank. Um, <laughs> we got to um, go back to prison now. Here's a thing that I had forgotten about this movie before I watched it this morning was that Roger Deakins shot this thing. Yeah. And like right off the bat, there's that when Andy's coming into the prison, there's like a shot that's like following the bus and then it goes up over the fucking administrative building <laughs> and you see the whole yard and shit. And I was like, who fucking shot this and and looked it up? And sure enough, it's Deacons. It's always Deacons. This has happened to me so many times where I'm like, damn, this is really impressive. And I go and like go to Wikipedia and look and it's like Deacons. Deacons yeah. once again. And yeah, we we noticed his name uh, through the credits. My friend pointed it out and then I just kept like being like, oh, yeah, I see it now. He's unreal. That guy. Like there the, are so many shots in the escape alone where you're just like, good Lord, how did, how does this like, like, of course this movie works so well. Like that last escape sequence is just shot in like the most insane way. And I think it's gorgeous. Yeah. And apparently both him and Darabont like have, have issues with that whole thing. Like they had like a more elaborate sequence of shots planned that they just didn't have the budget or the time for, but really? it's, yeah, but like sitting at home watching it, like it's it's perfect. I wouldn't change anything on it. You no. know, I'm sorry they didn't get to, you know, there. I guess there was like a further shot uh, beyond like Robin's standing in the rain where you would see him like going through a field and then hopping a train and blah, blah, blah. But like, I don't know. I think the moment's more powerful that it's just this dude like, you know, he has his freedom now. He's like casting his arms up to the sky and rain is pouring down on him. I mean, yeah. you don't need more than that. Literally washing away the shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One thing that I, I was sort of just like thinking about throughout the movie is how I think that it's very weird how popular this movie became amongst like a generation of people. And it doesn't feel like the messages within it sort of followed. Like, I feel like I fully believe that there is a depiction of police in media that contributes to the <laughs> the way that like Americans lionize the police and the reverse dynamic does not happen with like prison films because it's always like I, I don't remember any film where prison is depicted as this place where it's like, well, the people who were in there all deserve to be in there and they're being treated fairly and they're going to learn their lesson and get out of there. It's like always yeah. this inhumane place that's like power struggles <laughs> and uh, like just wardens uh, invoke like just violating so many rules. And I'm just sort of like it feels like we don't it's weird that people haven't turned around and been like, well, maybe we should think of prison as this inhumane place run by people who are uh, like using these prisoners as slave labor and it's so explicit here even in that like one small scene where they are just sort of like prison labor is the cheapest labor you can get and it's just so like it, it's it's funny to me that this movie is so big and is has such a strong clear like stance on this thing and it doesn't feel like anyone like takes that away from this or like anyone talks about this movie in the sense of like what it does for prison and i wonder if that's because it feels more like it feels like a fantasy film and that it's like the legend of this one prisoner. That's true. That's a good yeah. point about the, the whole idea of prisons on film. If there was like a subgenre of movies set in McDonald's and all of those movies depicted McDonald's as, you know, slave labor and just like a fucking nightmare to work at. 
you would think that people would eat at McDonald's less. Absolutely. You know, or, or be less supportive of it. Yeah. I think, I think the problem is that people just don't look at prisoners as human anymore. I think that a lot of people are just like, well, they committed a crime. They fucked up. They're done. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so that's like where their empathy ends. Yeah. I guess I, I don't have anything to add on to the end of that thought. That's just, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a failing of our country. Yeah. It's just very weird to me to watch this movie and go like, so this is pretty clear about how we, and people are like, yeah, this movie's great. And it's like, but you don't want to take any of that away. It's just, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to reform actual prisons after watching this movie. One of the reasons Shawshank, I think, is held to the uh, a higher standard in terms of popularity. You know, it, it's the number one or was at one point the number one rated movie on IMDb. I'm not sure if it still is. Um, but that only happens when you have a bunch of conservative grandparents and a bunch of, you know, film school, you know, liberal progressive kids that love the same movie, which actually right. doesn't happen a lot. But you're right. It's so bizarre. The conservative grandparents don't get that message. You Maybe it's because it's so far removed in time as well that they, they can just go, well, nice Morgan Freeman is in, in prison now. It's all those scary Antifa's. Right, you know, or whatever. Like, well, this was a bad prison, not like the real prison. <laughs> right. it's like, not like okay. a fun prison. Speaking of the bad prison aspect of it, there's something that I'd forgotten, and on this rewatch, it was really explicit to me. Was that in my mind, I remember Clancy Brown's character being, you know, uh, he beats people up, and he's really this mean asshole guy. And then once Tim Robbins helps him, he's nice. And that I just remembered the leaving off of uh, him just being nice, you know, from that. It's like, okay, well, he wins him over at some point. And then I'm like, oh, no, he straight up fucking murders that one dude. At yeah. The, you yeah. know, at, at the warden's behest, which is a new thing. That's something that Darabont added to the added to the movie. And it's such a great moment. And it's such a good idea, too, because he also incorporated the warden more. And I believe there are multiple wardens in the in the novella, he kind of combined them all into one main bad guy because you need one bad guy in this movie or else there is no villain, just kind right. of a, a hard ass warden. And in, in the novella, you have some of the same things where the warden's skimming money and, and profiting and, and using Andy to, to do all that in, in the movie. Like they really turn it up a notch to make the warden just a hugely despicable guy. It's it's a great. Oh, smart you want to kill him? I think you just want to fucking kill him when he comes in there. When like you know, after Tommy's been shot and Andy's been in like solitary for a month or whatever the fuck it is, and he comes in there and it's just like we'll burn your fucking library to the to the ground and dance around it. Like, oh, you just want this motherfucker to die so bad. Yeah. Like he's he's a well, great and villain. And here's why it's so important, because something else Daremont does that they don't do in the novella is he builds up this, he lays all this groundwork for the potential for Andy to kill himself, to get broken by the, the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a guy that is so quiet, and the very first thing Red does is bet that he's going to break that first night, right? That is his first interaction, his first thought of this character. He's surprised by him, and he's obviously very smart and all this other stuff, but like he hits such a low at that moment and specifically with that scene that you're talking about. And one of the next things we hear about is him asking for the length of rope and, and all this other stuff. And we've gotten that whole detour into Brooks's suicide. And so everything has been laid out for you to think it's quite possible that he broke at this Mm. point, because once again, it's all from red's point of view. And at that moment, red's thinking Andy's broken. I've seen this happen. It's happened before. It'll happen again. 
he is convinced that whenever Andy doesn't step out for the roll call that he's hanging in a cell. Yeah. And so in very smartly, Darebot goes, guess what? This is all from Red's point of view. So if Red, the character is convinced, then I have to make the audience convinced that that's what's going to happen. It, it's such a great just storytelling trick that he pulls on us at that moment. Agreed. And also the whole Brooks sequence on this viewing for me, like just completely fucked me up. Oh my God. It's so good. It's so good. It's amazing. Like it's a little short film in the middle of everything else going on in this movie, but it is just devastating. Like I, like I was crying watching it earlier. I'm not like historically I've, I've not been a big crier at movies, but what I've noticed is as I've gotten older, I cry more easily. And I think that this is an empathy thing. When I was in my say early twenties, I was a lot more disaffected, a lot more callous to giving a shit about anyone else. But as time has gone on and I've had however many life experiences, I feel like I've, I I just feel like I've become more empathetic and I don't recall ever watching that sequence and being just shattered by it. But Mm. on this particular viewing it, it fucked me up, but good. You know what really gets me about that sequence is him in the grocery store just trying so hard and like being like like told like he's got to go faster. And I I just I have this thing in me where it's like being he's trying so hard. Please just be nice to him. And yeah. I just feel like in my chest, just like tears swelling up being like he's trying. Please, he's never done this before. Why are you doing this to? It's just like <laughs> well, yeah. And his narration at that moment too is so brutal too because he's not going woe is me he's not even making excuses he just says but my hands hurt so much yeah <laughs> you, know, he's he so, says, he's, you look he's so old let let him alone he says something like i don't think the boss likes me very much and i was just I, it's like it breaks my heart yeah. yeah it reminds me of like every service industry job i ever had or like you know I, I worked in a grocery store that was like my i think that was my very first job i was like a guy that you know, a boy, let's let's be frank, that like walked your your groceries out to the car when they used to do that. And um, there were old people on those on those jobs and they were sort of invisible to everybody else. And every service industry job I've ever had where there was like an exceptionally old person on the staff, it, it was it almost felt like like something had had gone wrong that that this person should be doing, you know, a very fast paced job that they shouldn't be there. For several years in in my mid 20s, I worked for Olive Garden, right? I was a waiter at Olive Garden. And there was a hostess that worked there that was like in her, I'm going to guess, late 60s or something. And she was completely overwhelmed by the, the very idea of the service industry. And a host position in a restaurant is like, not easy. You know, there's a lot of like strategy that goes along with that and like matching types of tables to types of servers and and not like overwhelming a server by seating them too much too often. She was very bad at this, as it turns out. And I'm sure that was like a result of her her age and cognition at that point in her life. But like at the time, I, I was really annoyed by it. And in retrospect, I'm like, fuck, I, I wish I'd been nicer to that person. Because what were they even doing there in the first place? One time she showed up to work and her face was like pancake makeup white and no one knew what was going on. And it, one of the managers asked her about it. And it turned out that she had taken a stick of deodorant to her whole face in an attempt to not sweat on the job. Like how fucking Jesus. like that person should not be put in this position, should not have to work this job. And nowadays I wonder like, why was she, why was she even working that job at that age? And I just feel terrible for her. Didn't feel that way in my 
you know, early 20s. You know, I was just worried about getting double sad at the fucking Olive Garden. But if that lady's still out there, I, I hope you're doing well. Yeah, she, she's a Patreon subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to loop back around to uh, Clancy Brown's performance in this movie. Clancy Brown is one of our best character actors. I'm wondering uh, what, what y'all's favorite Clancy Brown performances might be. I got to look up Clancy Brown just to see what else he's done. <laughs> Well, he was in. Have you seen the Mortuary Collection? I just watched that last night. I have not. He's the voice of Mr. Krabs. Yeah, he is. There it is. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll always think of him as the Kurgan from Highlander. Uh, that's when he's got the safety pins in his neck. Yeah, Carnival. Yeah, he he's great like in Carnival. Yeah. I'm on. I'm on a different road here because now I'm like he was in Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a big voice actor that guy i was telling eric uh, before the show he he did a really nice thing for me a couple years ago where uh i interviewed him for some movie that he had done whatever i used to record the interview just totally shit the bed so i got through like this half hour excellent interview with him and excitedly went to go transcribe it and it was just gone and so i had to turn around and talk to the publicist or the pr people or whoever it was and say yeah you're not getting this interview anymore um my machine just crapped out on me. I'm, I'm done. And, uh, he agreed to come back. He gave me another half hour. He did, he did the whole fucking thing over again and could not have been nicer about it. Just oh, like total that's so sweet. wonderful. It was amazing. Like that would never fucking happen ever. I'm always like delighted to hear that people that play like just these awful villains are actually very <laughs> sweet. And I'm like, what's going on there? Are you like channeling something very specific in this role? And then you're like, Oh, I can never do that again. <laughs> He's good at playing a bad guy. He's really good at it. But in my experience, not a bad guy at all. And he was also another Stephen King connection. He was also the heavy in in Pet Cemetery 2, which Mm. we needn't dwell on Pet Cemetery 2 too much because that was, (laughs) you know, not a not a winner, but um, very memorable. in that. I I I rewatched it recently. I watched that in the original Pet Cemetery before the remake came out. I, I was so excited actually going into it because my memory of it was like, oh, it wasn't all that great. But after rewatching that first Pet Cemetery and going, man, Mary Lambert knows what the fuck she's doing. It's reevaluation time, baby. You weren't, I'm going to be that guy that's going to get mad on the internet about uh, why people shit on Pet Cemetery too so much. And then in the first five minutes of the movie, you go, I was just like, oh man, it's like, nope, not going to be the one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this isn't going to be my book of shadows. Another thing that I noticed about this on rewatch was that like 95% of the movie probably takes place within the prison and it's, it's of the same color palette. It's Mm. gray, it's Brown or tan. It's all like these sort of earth tones and it's, it's very muted and you know, it's a fucking prison. Right. And I was thinking about it like on, on this viewing that it ends on that beach you know, originally they they had been thinking about a, a more ambiguous ending, like the novella, which just leaves right. off with Red getting on the bus, right? And so you don't know, yeah, you don't know if he makes it or not, yeah. But but here you get to see Red on the beach with Andy, and then as the credits roll, there's that shot of the beach and those like blue waters, and I was thinking, what a fucking masterstroke this is because you have spent you know the past two hours or so just being beaten senseless with, you know, the color gray, basically. And then not only is it an uplifting ending textually, but also visually, it's sending you out of the theater quite literally 
looking at a, a pristine white beach and these like glorious blue waters. It's 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 hard for me to believe that that wasn't uh, an intentional choice to begin with. I understand that wasn't the plan, but it's a very smart choice. It, it sells the moment, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, you're right. It's very striking, and and I it's kind of there in the text of you know, with as much as they talk about the Pacific and dream about the Pacific during the the whole thing. I mean, because ultimately the whole theme of this movie is hope, right? Mm-hmm. That red is like, hope will kill you in here. Don't have hope. Just make prison your life. And that's kind of what kills Brooks. He had been in there so long that he couldn't envision his place in the world afterwards. Right. Right. What Andy does to everybody is he gives them hope. That's the whole point of the opera scene where where he turns on the record and gets thrown in, in solitary for it. You know, he's giving everybody hope. And you see in that how he changes every inmate. You know, Haywood, who William Sadler plays, opens the movie by essentially getting a guy killed by egging him on to win a bet. Right. Mm-hmm. But by the end of it, he is kind of this happy, you know, he's telling these stories about Andy's life, the, the whole scene where they're tarring the roof and Andy gets them all beers by helping Hadley with his, mm-hmm. um, you know, his tax problems. It's like all that stuff. It's all about making them remember who they are as human beings. And so that's all personified. Like I, I've read all that, all the stories about how Darabont wanted to leave it ambiguous, but I, I hope he looks back now and goes, that you need that because the whole point of the movie is to give you that moment showing red. He doesn't follow the same path that Brooks does. Andy was able to give him enough hope to get him on that beach. And yeah, that's red you know, arc, it, you know, that yeah. is that, 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 that is in, in red is the movie. And so the movie doesn't have an arc if red doesn't finish his. So, so it it is, you're right. It's, it's a masterful ending. It's it just from a film analyst uh, perspective. It's the cherry on top. It's what solidifies everything. It's what makes the chemistry work and the cake come out perfect. Totally. Demi, do you have a theory as to why this movie would resonate across age groups and, you know, just across every possible quadrant? I think it's I think it's got a real I mean, the in terms of like older uh, audiences, it's got a real cable TV uh, procedural feel where you're just sort of like if you're flipping through the channels and you see Shawshank Redemption, it's like every scene you're like, well, that's a good scene. I got to finish the scene. And then you're like, well, I'm in the movie now. And it's also just like, I I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things where like every individual piece of it works so well that it's kind of like, if you're a a college student learning about film and you're like, well, it's, it's got a really good script and it's got really good direction and great performances. It's just sort of so many things where you look at it and you're like, yeah, I can hang on to any piece of this as something that I should watch for like inspiration or to look to as like a, a guide. But then it's also just sort of like, it, it feels like a fantasy film. So it doesn't feel like a prison procedural or like a very hard stodgy drama. If you're someone who, uh, enjoys more of a, a story told to you that doesn't feel like it's set in the real world. You're, you're watching this thing as if it's like the legend of Andy Dufresne yeah. or you're reading, you're listening to this things. If it's like the princess bride, but being told to you by red and it's just so many different, it, it feels like it taps into a lot of different genres in the way that it's told where it's like, there are moments where it feels like a thriller there are moments where it feels like, like a crime drama. There are moments where you're like watching just a tragedy unfold. It's a lot of things that, I think, I don't know, work in so many different quadrants that it's hard not to find a, a thing that you can enjoy in it uh, unless you are looking for a female character. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, another thought that I had while watching this is that 
you know, and I, I thought this a few times as I was revisiting it today was, well, this is a perfect movie. And I'm curious if y'all think such a thing exists. Are there are there perfect movies? I think perfect movie as a concept is hard because I wonder if that it's like, well, are you looking at that objectively or subjectively? Objectively, I'm like, no, that's just you can't find a movie that everyone's like, yeah, this one's perfect. But I do think subjectively there are perfect movies. Definitely. It's like any movie that I, I, I think any movie that I could watch and just have this feeling of like, wow, I'm watching something very special. It feels like that's the movie to me where I'm like, this is a perfect movie. And there's so many movies like that where I'm like, I look at it and I'm like, no, it's got flaws. There's a lot of things that I'm like, well, this seems wrong. And this is even from a technical standpoint, maybe not done very well, but I still am like, no, it's a perfect movie because it accomplishes the goals that they set out <laughs> to do in like the best possible way. And this is definitely up there. There are some small things in it where I'm just like, like, I, I feel one thing that is so frustrating to me when I watch this movie is like, there are different times where they say like, uh, you know, it's been six years. I'm like, it has it like even just like the timing of it all just feels like, <laughs> oh, we're 20 years into this. OK, but that's such a small thing. It's such a generation defining movie, I would say. Like, I think this is the like a perfect film of the 90s. Like, if you were to be like, what are the best films made in the 90s? I'd be like Shawshank Redemption's. It's like if you were to be like, you can only keep these movies as a example of how movies should be made in this period of time. It's like, no, Shawshank Redemption is maybe the first one. But it's it's just like, I think it goes down to a feeling. Like, that's the only way that I can even describe how good a movie is. It's just sort of like right. when I think about the escape sequence, I'm like, no, no matter how many times I watch that music swells. And he's like banging the rock against the the grate uh, in time with the, the, the thunder. thunder. And I'm just like, this is... Right. Imagine being in a theater. My bones would turn to jelly. This is perfect filmmaking right here. It's just so hard not to see so many things about this and go like, it's perfect, even though I'm sure some people would disagree and probably don't like it. But it's like, it's perfect to me. So, right. I think that you could, you know, obviously nothing is literally perfect. And and you're right. You know, uh, everything is subjective. Art is subjective. But I do think there are some movies that come pretty fucking close. Like like Jurassic Park is is another one that I would I would throw out there. Like I'm sure that if I went out and asked enough people, I would find some asshole that has a problem with Jurassic Park. Maybe I've, I've you, talked to a few of them. Maybe a lot of them are just like they didn't they weren't as close to the novel. The the raptor scene on the boat was much cooler in the book. I don't know why they didn't include it. Well, I've talked to those people. They that's exist. just a pedantic douche. Mm. <laughs> you know, like I think maybe 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 the term perfect movie is impossible. Universally beloved might be the the more appropriate term. You know, I think Shawshank is one of those. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of those. Jurassic Park is one of those. It's it's weird to like even just list it like that. It is funny. I feel like Shawshank is the outlier where you're like Jaws, Jurassic Park, Shawshank Redemption. I'm like, well, some of those are like more blockbustery, and this is such a like sit down movie that it's very weird that it is in the same field. True. It's, I mean, it's it doesn't have universal appeal, you know. No. Um, not like a not like a, a Jaws or a Jurassic Park, where I feel like most people would enjoy that. I can I can imagine a, a good section of the audience not being on board for for what Shawshank does. But right to throw out another example that came out within the same month as Shawshank, Pulp Fiction came out the same month that that Shawshank Redemption came out, and I would consider Pulp Fiction a, a pretty close to perfect movie for me i i imagine that that's that would be a harder thing to argue than you know against uh, a group of people versus jurassic park but it's kind of cool that that those two 
came out within such close proximity to one another. That was a good year for film. Here's the thing, though, is Pulp Fiction for people at the time changed the way they watched movies. For sure. Like everybody, I, you know, I was 13 when Pulp Fiction came out and it opened my mind to a different kind of film in a way that no other movie had at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it really sparked something in me watching that in the theater. And I'm saying all this, I think Shawshank will outlive Pulp Fiction. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because it's timeless. Pulp Fiction is very 90s. You watch that movie and and there's something distinctly 90s about that film that it, it just lacks that timeless quality that making a period piece does. It's the same reason why Raiders of the Lost Ark will outlive most other blockbusters is because it's it doesn't exist in the time it was made. And so it, right. it will always feel out of time. Yeah. And that's and like when you make a movie that has to exist out of time, it will. Yeah. Like you're saying, but if you make a movie where it's like, it's that's why I don't like movies where they talk about Twitter or Instagram too much. Cause I'm just like, ah, you're just really trying to be like, don't forget it's about now. And I'm like, I don't care about right. now. <laughs> yeah. Cause right. you'll be outdated even by the time you hit screens. Yeah. Exactly. I'm like, this sounds like you're 50 writing about a thing that I use offhand. Like I just, yeah. Yeah, just look at all the 90s uh, computer movies like The Net. Oh, God. Johnny <laughs> Mnemonic. The Net. Oh, my God. Isn't when Dennis Miller that in that? He's Dennis like a- Miller's in, in all of our hearts at all points, so he's in everything. Definitely. You know what? I used to like Dennis Miller like way back in the day, but he's, yeah, he's become a, a, a clown in his in his later days. In my yeah. It's not just, even it's funny. Like, no. I, I could see him using his shtick. He can be conservative or whatever, but it, it's... It's so weird how, you know, how when people go super far right, the humor just like dissipates, like the actual jabs, the comedy for whatever reason. I don't know, unless they're doing like blue collar Jeff Foxworthy jokes or whatever, you know, that that might be hacky, but at least you can get a laugh out of it. But like so many right wing comedians now, like I just don't, you know, maybe it's just my liberal bubble. I can't really understand, well, you know, where, where the joke is in, in this stuff. It just seems like everything's just mean. That's yeah, it. It feels like there's such a focus on like the message of what they're saying, that the comedy is lost. And because the message right. feels so untenable, it's just like, it feels maybe it's just like it's to us, but I'm like, it always feels like a stretch. I'm like, you really just have like the few things that you can sit on. And the way that Dennis Miller does his comedy, I'm like, it's just so wordy and verbose in a way that i'm like this doesn't work if you're if you're doing you're doing all of this work to get to a message that you can just do by going like liberal bad i'm just like (laughs) you need need more things to rest on i don't know and on the subject of conservatives doing comedy i think that comedy requires empathy even if you're flipping it on its head so that it's it's ironic or really dark you know it's still playing on empathy and i feel like empathy is a thing that is completely absent of the conservative message most of the time. Yeah. And so once you once you remove that and then they're trying to be funny on top of it, it either comes across as thuddingly obvious or too mean-spirited to work. That's sort of where Dennis Miller is at on top of like, you know, the the wordy thing that he's always done, but now it's like now his his references and his I've I've looked at his Twitter from time to time and it's just like, what the fuck have you become, dude? Like, (laughs) this is this is sad. 
It's, it's so funny because there's, you know, you look at the Bill Hickses of the world and George Carlin's of the world and Richard Pryor's. It's like, uh, and even you know, Eddie Murphy in his heyday, like there was a lot of anger in their, in their comedy too, which is what most conservative comedy is. But there's, there's something to be said about that empathy gap that you talk about there. And there's also something to be said about their willingness to be self-deprecating, uh, which I don't really get from right. most uh, conservative comedians either. Uh, because maybe because they feel like they're under attack all the time from the from predominantly left leaning comedian. No, you know, it's because community. It, I disagree. I think it's because showing weakness is a problem for them. Yeah, I think so much of conservative comedy has the punchline of you should hate this person. And it's hard to laugh and also go like, yeah, I am mad now. It's like, oh, <laughs> right. I can do one of these two things. <laughs> But we can all agree that Larry the Cable Guy is hilarious. Number one. If I ever meet him, I'm going to be starstruck. (laughs) Step aside, John Mulaney. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's one more scene in Shawshank to bring it back one more time that I'd like to talk about before we wrap this up. And that is probably in a movie filled with iconic scenes and there's scenes that, that hit me emotionally better. There's scenes that are more engaging, but the scene that I think is probably my favorite in the whole movie is red's third parole hearing. It follows the rule of yes. threes. Cause you've seen him go up for parole twice before this. And this is the third time. And both times he is hat in hand, you know, please let me out all this, you know, uh, saying everything that he thinks should be said to get out. And then the third time he just is like, Listen, you you guys are going to do what you're going to do. You know, he goes in with a completely different attitude and gives that great speech about pretty much how the whole process is bullshit and the the kid that he was that committed the crime doesn't exist anymore and that it, yes, it weighs on him every single day, but that doesn't matter because you know, rehabilitation is is a is a bullshit term made up by politicians. Mm-hmm. Right? Like he has this whole great thing in the way Freeman plays it. I mean, the the whole movie's Oscar worthy. I mean, I think that his narration that ends with "I hope" is one of the all time great film writing moments of you know in the entire history of cinema. But that scene right there is what I'm convinced got him the uh, Academy Award nomination. Is just the way he played that. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's the if it isn't the one they sh- first of all did he win an Oscar for this? No, it oh got seven nominations and it won nothing. What? Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's psychotic to me. Well, Forrest Gump swept that year. You got to remember, oh, this right. was the same year. Like Gump was going up against Pulp Fiction, and and this one was also uh, a heavy nominee. I wish the Academy was self-effacing to do like a ten years later. Here's like, <laughs> yeah. Here's let's just yeah, go back whoops. and be like we messed up. It's like well, you can keep th- the Oscar, yeah. but we messed up. There's like <laughs> an there's an unofficial version of that though. In that you know the movies that are really meant to stand the test of time just do. You know, whether or not you give them a trophy at the end of the year, like a movie like uh, like Pulp Fiction or like Shawshank Redemption, I think has come out the other side of this thing with a, a, a higher status than something like Forrest Gump, which, you know, Forrest Gump is sort of like Shawshank in that it's often referred to as like a dad movie. But I think people have more respect for Shawshank than Forrest Gump, which is oh, seen now definitely. as like, you know, way more gimmicky and kind of a punching bag. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, I almost called him Tom Cruise. I think Tom Hanks is doing a great job there, but it is still this thing of like, sorry, a loud motorcycle just drive by, I drove by. Oh, I thought it was my wolves again. <laughs> I think Tom Hanks, 
I almost said Tom Cruise again and then stopped. Anyway, I think Tom <laughs> Hanks is doing a very good job in Forrest Gump, but I, I still think like as a whole, the movie, it rests so much on him that when you sort of see that performance as flawed or like as it's a weird thing to be doing, you the whole movie kind of falls apart. And it's just sort right. of like, it is, it, it's a similar thing to Shawshank where you kind of go, well, oh, I'm just watching the legend of this guy. What is the movie outside of that? And, but with Shawshank, it's like, it's still a very interesting film. And with Forrest Gump, you're just like, I guess it's just a list of things this guy did. And we're supposed to be inspired by that. Yeah. Right. And the, the effects of, of Forrest Gump kind of date it now. Like at the time that was like some state of the art shit inserting Tom Hanks into various historical footages and, and what have you. It looks a little janky now. It doesn't really hold up. Are you saying Forrest Gump is the net of the Oscar contenders that year? I'm saying say that, that what we I'm I'm saying that we should remake Forrest Gump with with Demi's idea of having Tom Cruise in the Forrest Gump role. <laughs> oh, I think Tom than, Cruise can nail that. I would pay a lot of money just to see like 20 minutes of Forrest Gump remade with Tom Cruise. That would Forrest be Forrest Gump like intense Forrest Gump seems so weird. I'm like that's a horror movie. <laughs> intense like he, Gump. <laughs> He just started running, and he just wouldn't stop running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, well, that that would that's true. He was born to play that part because he runs yeah. across the country. In my mind, Cruz isn't even doing the Gump voice. He's just being Tom Cruise, but delivering those lines. Yeah, it would be fucking hysterical. Okay, I'm looking with, with the with the intensity of the "You Complete Me" monologue from Jeremy yeah. Boyer. Yeah, oh, like chewing gum and smiling. You know, Mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You know, just like sitting on the bench, but looking like pretty sharp in that suit. You know, yeah. well, it's just Jack Reacher we're talking about now. <laughs> yeah, he's going to straight up murder some fools now. I'm looking at the Academy Awards page for 1995. And first of all, I'm surprised that Morgan Freeman was nominated as actor and not supporting actor. Because mm. I think he would have. He would have. I mean, it is his movie, but it feels like Tim Robbins is the lead. So it's wild to me that he didn't. Maybe he would have won then. I don't know. If Tim Robbins was a bigger name at the time, maybe. Yeah. But I think that that's, that's sort of what's what's happening there. Who who was he up against in the supporting? Oh, if you, do you have that in front of you? Yeah. If he if he had run it support, as supporting, it would be Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi, who won. Oh, who won? Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Pulp Fiction, Chaz Palmin, Terry Bolt of a Broadway, Paul Schofield, Quiz Show, and Gary Sinise and Forrest Gump. Uh, that's a pretty stacked... Uh, Stack category. What, what were the best actors that he actually was up against? Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump, Morgan Freeman, Shawshank, Nigel Hawthorne, The Madness of King George, Paul Newman, Nobody's Fool, and Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Travolta's the lead of Pulp Fiction, huh? All right. Yeah, I don't... A lot of these, I'm like, it, they kind of just chose one. <laughs> yeah, they picked one over the... I, I don't know. I, I seem to think, feel like in that category, if... Forrest Gump wasn't such a Oscar bait shit. He would have, he would have, yeah. he, he would have had a better chance in that. Absolutely. In that best actor list. Fucking Gary Sinise, man. Where did that guy go? CSI. He does. Oh yeah. yeah. CSI. And he does, does a lot of music for the troops. He I also want, is at I like, I think uh destination space or whatever at Disney world. <laughs> oh, yep. Yep. Like he, <laughs> yeah. He doesn't have a part in the in the ride. He just hangs out outside of Destination Space. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Sorry. He runs the ride is what I meant to say. <laughs> he, he hits the, the green button to make everything go. Right. 
yelling at children when they don't buckle up for the we all have passion <laughs> projects. <laughs> yeah, yes. In in his best angry Lieutenant Dan screaming at God voice. Disney's been trying to get him off the property for years, but he's an Oscar nominee. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> yeah, are there any closing thoughts? Yeah, has anybody got got anything to to add? Nothing from me. I guess my only final thought on this is that I hadn't watched it again before we recorded this in 10 or 15 years, probably. And before that, I had seen it a bunch of times. It Like, I had seen it so many times that I was kind of like, I get it. I don't need to. It, it's great. I don't need to see it again anytime soon. But I was very thankful to have a reason to to watch it again. And it's somehow even better than I remembered it. And I kind of feel like maybe I've been taking this movie's greatness for granted. So that's that's really the only only tag that I would I would have to add here. It's yeah, it's same. just a it's just an uncommonly well made movie. I was definitely going into it being like, all right, here we go. Number one on IMDb. All right, let's see how I feel about this now. And I was like, no, it's good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> within yeah, like within minutes, like it's just kicking your ass. It's mm. it's that whole the the I already mentioned this, but like the way they intercut between like the crime and the courtroom shit and the credits are going are, are happening over it. I think it's just like a gorgeous way to open the thing. Yeah, it's so right. fucking good. Yeah, I, I think that it's important to underline just how much this movie brings you in. We live in an age of distracted viewing at home. Like, even if you're good about not mm-hmm. fucking around on your phone watching movies, which, which most people aren't, they'll say they are, but they aren't. This movie, like, had me put my phone down for the first time in God knows how many movies. I don't do that. I don't check my phone and shit when I'm watching something I've never seen before, but watching something I've seen a million times. I'll, I'll tend to scroll through Twitter or whatever and then, you know, jump back in for stretches. I didn't do that on this viewing. I just I stared at the screen. I was just sucked in to the movie like mm-hmm. I was the first time. And what I'm trying to say is that it's the Tom Cruise of movies. That <laughs> you get tunnel vision when you, when you engage it. I will admit that I was baking the entire time I watched this movie. <laughs> <laughs> what did you make? Uh, apple turnovers. Oh, that sounds delightful. Yeah, they were. Do you have anything you would like to plug, Demi? What are you working on? Uh, I'm writing on the Amber Ruffin show on Peacock, everyone's favorite streaming service. So check that out. You know what? We've got Peacock. My wife got it the other day, so I can I can check that out. It's free. Everyone should have. We were done signing up for. Oh, is it? I thought yeah. she signed up for it. It just showed I think up there's on like my a, PlayStation 4. And I was like, there's like an ad-free version, but it's also like you can just watch the show for free, which rules because I don't have to be like, please, everyone, pay for Quibi. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Cruise is in it at some point. We thank you so much for being here with us today. Please keep up the good work. You are thank you. just killing it out there. And uh, thank it you was, so much. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Pleasure to speak to you guys, too. Many thanks to Demi for joining us for that very lively chat. I was very super duper excited to talk to talk to Demi. I've been a big fan of that guy's work for uh, a long time. So what a what a pleasure and an honor to uh, have that gentleman on the show. We thank him for coming in. Yeah, no, he he was uh, he was a great guest. He's very insightful and put up with uh, all of our Tom Cruise sidebars that we had. Ah, <laughs> uh, the, the the fabled Kingcast sidebar. Uh, you're gonna get those when. Pretty much every episode. You just don't know what kind of form they're going to take. You know, it might be old folks' homes with acid in them. Could be a a lengthy dissertation on Mannequin 2. You never know. That's how we keep things lively around here. Just for the record, like, it's those little detours where the really weird moments happen. Yeah, no, if we'd stuck to the straight and narrow, then we wouldn't have Chut Buggins.
Exactly. What a perfect example. So next week, uh, what do we got on the docket next week? Next week, it could give you guys a little bit of whiplash because we are going from Shawshank Redemption, which is one of the best Stephen King movies and one of the best Stephen King novellas, to one of the worst Stephen King movies. We are going into The Mangler next week. Toby Hooper's The Mangler. What a cinematic endeavor this is. (laughs) I I don't think that I'd actually seen The Mangler in full before we watched this. I think I'd only seen bits and pieces of it. So it was... um, Ooh, it was it was something. It is one that I think that, as we'll cover in the episode, uh, that we discovered we had a lot more fun breaking it down and dissecting it than we did actually watching it. It was kind of a miserable rewatch, if we're going to be honest. Yes, um, but. Yes. But like the episode itself, we're sitting here going, man, like the w- the way we're talking about this movie, this should be something we love because that movie goes fucking crazy. Yeah, that yeah, movie yeah. is bonkers. It's just kind of a chore to get through, but talking about it's actually a lot of fun. This is and true. And we have a really fun guest. I don't know how to tease the guest. Um, he was a member of an internet famous comedy troupe. They made a movie together at one point, and he is a published author. That's all I got. It's a good episode, and, and uh, I think you guys will really like it. Yes, indeed. And this Friday, uh, we have something very special for the the KingCast Patreon. We have finally worked out the kinks, of which there were many, on the long-lost Dreamcatcher commentary. You would not believe the bullshit that went on in us just trying to set this up and execute it. And then there was technical problems and all kinds of stuff. And what's really ironic about it is we've gone through... And when I say we, I mean mostly Eric, have gone through, and when I say mostly, I mean almost entirely, have gone through a lot of fucking effort to to salvage this thing. Uh, We we think we've got it working now, but you should prepare yourself for this commentary. Well, the movie is Dreamcatcher, so you kind of know what you're going to get into (laughs) here. Uh, So here's the thing. Here's the thing is get a little cabin feverish. We get a little loopy. It becomes less of a commentary and more of an experience. I'll I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Uh, Up to and including the fact that at one point I end up on a seven second delay. So I'm seeing things seven seconds after Eric and our guest. And our guest, by the way, is uh, a Twitter personality at UE Bullocks. A very funny gentleman. Uh, I've been I've been friends with for a long time. And uh, when he offered to Come in on Dreamcatcher. I was like, that's a that's a perfect marriage of guest and material. And he did not disappoint. Come into it with the attitude of, well, come into it with a six pack of beer. I would say that. Yeah, th- this is definitely more of a friends gathering together and watching something that they know is bad and using just what's on the screen as an excuse to spin off into various other ridiculous conversations. It's uh, it's fun. Do we have anything else we need to? Uh, no, that's that's it. We need to talk I think about. That's all. All of our all of our housekeeping is uh, is that I hope everybody has a happy Thanksgiving, all of our American friends and all of our non-American friends. You know, we, we're sorry for the last four years. Hopefully you're not traveling. Uh, those of you who are able to see your families uh, safely enjoy that. Everyone else stay your ass at home and uh, just sit this one out. Don't kill your grandparents. Enjoy your your turkey at home by yourself. Indeed. All right. See you guys later. Later.